you don't need to go to the distant national park to find wonder around you. Hello, and welcome to Golden State Naturalist, a podcast for anyone who's ever wanted to learn how to look a little more closely and find wonder in the most seemingly mundane of moments. I'm Michelle Fulner, and you just heard the voice of John Muir Laws, who's going to guide us today on an exploration of nature journaling. Now, before you turn this off because you don't think of yourself as an artist, know that one of the things we're going to talk about is why pretty pictures actually don't matter in nature journaling. The aesthetic quality of the art, thankfully for many of us, just isn't the point of the activity. So on today's episode, find out what the point of nature journaling actually is, and we'll also talk about a lot more, like the nature of memory, why your brain is expensive, what two triads, so six things, should be included in every nature journal, how to cultivate attention, growing your curiosity, art supplies, metadata, what love is, prompts, bloody feathers, nature journaling in cities, a hat-throwing Yosemite ranger, the ephemeral nature of being, and how to find rapture in the little mysteries all around us. Really quick before we get to that, don't forget to subscribe to make sure you stay up to date on new episodes. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, you can do that by hitting the little plus in the upper right-hand corner of your screen. I also want to celebrate really fast that Golden State Naturalist is now only $20 a month away from being fully funded by the amazing listeners helping out on Patreon. It would mean so much to me as an independent podcaster if you could help me cover that last $20 by chipping in as little as $4 a month. With that membership, you also get access to all kinds of cool video and audio extras, AMAs, and more, including sending me your questions for the naturalists before I go out on interviews. Thank you so much to everyone who's already supporting on Patreon. There'll be an AMA or Ask Me Anything coming up soon, which will probably be more like a very casual Zoom hangout where everyone wears loungy clothes and drinks their favorite beverage. You can find me on Patreon at www.patreon.com slash Michelle Fulner. That's Michelle with two L's and Fulner is F-U-L-L-N-E-R. And if you're enjoying the show, I cannot tell you how much it helps to leave a rating or review, particularly on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. This helps Golden State Naturalist stay active in the charts, which helps more people discover the show. Last month, with your help, Golden State Naturalist hit number six in the nature charts. So thank you so much for making that possible by listening, reviewing, and sharing with everyone who's ever told you an interesting fact they learned on a podcast. You can find me at Golden State Naturalist on both Instagram and TikTok if you want to see my outdoor adventures and pictures of the interview locations. But now let's get to the episode. John Muir Laws, also known as Jack, is a principal leader and innovator of the worldwide nature journaling movement. Jack is a scientist, educator, and author of numerous books, including The Law's Guide to Nature Drawing and Journaling, The Law's Guide to the Sierra Nevada, and so many more. He also recently illustrated a beautiful new book called Wild Sonoma. Jack is the founder and president of the Wild Wonder Foundation, which is a nonprofit organization dedicated to encouraging nature connection and conservation through attention, curiosity, art, science, and community. And he's the founder and host of the Nature Journal Club, which is a worldwide intergenerational nature journaling community with a Facebook group that's over 45,000 members strong. He was given the 2020 Bay Nature Local Hero Award for his work in environmental education, and he's a regular contributor to Bay Nature magazine with his Naturalist Notebook column. His work intersects science, art, and mindfulness. Trained as a wildlife biologist and an associate of the California Academy of Sciences, he observes the world with rigorous attention. He's also a fantastic human being and delightful conversationalist, as you're soon going to see. So without further ado, let's hear from John Muir Laws on Golden State Naturalist. 
Oh, it's a weird looking little thing. And this one has a little white nugget sticking out of it. I wonder if those are Ooh. flowers. Jack and I met up back in November at Bedwell Bayfront Park, right on the southwestern edge of the San Francisco Bay, where the rolling hills of the peninsula give way to salt water. In the space between hills and water, though, there's an almost eerie place where the ground is made up of white-gray crystals that crunch with each footstep, and shallow streams snake lazily across a landscape dotted with unassuming brown plants no taller than your ankle. It was these plants we stopped to examine, each of us pulling out a notebook before sitting cross-legged on the ground. Most of the plant was this mass of sort of dried up, crinkly brown material. And then there are these succulent red and spring green jewels that stick out of that. And then each one of those has texture. Right. Like, like morning dew, little mm -hmm. droplets of morning dew or lizard skin. Ooh, lizard skin is a good one. We were surrounded by mysteries, any of which we could have pursued that day. The strange, lumpy ground with hollow places inside. What type of mineral we were crunching all over. We knew it wasn't salt because Jack tasted it. I'll actually put a video of that on social media. And then these strange plants with this funny little succulent looking thing on the end of it. And we decided to sit and look at the plant. And as you listen to this first part of the episode, I want you to imagine us both sitting there on the mineral ground, sketching this odd little plant. But one of the things I really wanted to understand is why it's important to stop and actually draw something rather than just stopping to look at it closely. The purpose of the journal is the journal itself is just, it's an extension of, of your memory. It's a way of kind of logging more stuff into your memory in a way that you can retrieve it, that process is going to help you notice more in the moment. So being more present and more observant is huge. But there's another big reason for the journal. Our brains cannot hold very much information mm -hmm. at one time. And if we try to kind of fit another little piece in there, what it does is it kicks out something else that you were uh, thinking about. Right. And we think that you know, you make some cool natural history observation that that is going to stick with you. You're going to remember this <laughs> indefinitely. Right. But that's not the way that it works. Unfortunately, we forget stuff. Right. We're so much more forgetful than we like to think because our memories do this really wonderful thing. Like you think about something that happened to you when you were a little child, mm -hmm. some little childhood memory. And when you recall it, you can recall it vividly as if you're, you're looking at a little movie of it. Right. Well, probably most, if not all, of what you're experiencing is something you made up. And what happens is your brain will, will recall a little nugget of an experience, and then there are all these gaps. Mm -hmm. And then your brain fills in all those gaps with stuff that's completely made up. And sometimes it can even take some story that you heard or something that you read about it and incorporate that into <laughs> the memory. You know, it's funny, that reminds me of when I was little, I have these very strong memories of being little, and when the video camera would come out, running over and sticking my face in it and making silly faces and just running around like a little maniac being crazy. <laughs> then I went and I watched the home videos. It was my brother doing all of that. Oh. I didn't do any of that. I was like sitting there watching him, <laughs> observing what he was doing. So that's, we, we, we confabulate. We, right. we make stuff up or we incorporate uh -huh. whatever into our memories and it has the subjective feeling of being your experience. Mm -hmm. So vividly, I know I was there. I was a little maniac when I was a kid. I, I was, was so energetic, I was bouncing off the walls. Yes. 
That was totally me. I identified with it. It's very strange to be confronted with facts that are not just different from your memories, but that actually make you rethink who you were and who you are. But that's just kind of how memory works. Isn't it interesting that very often around photo albums, we're like, oh yeah, I totally remember that event. Uh Okay, what happened next? We have no idea. But we see this little photograph, and then we can Uh kind of invent a story of us being in that. There's this little artifact of an experience, and I'm seeing that I'm supposed to be in that. Then my brain goes ahead and invents all this stuff around it. So if we're doing that all the time, and we're trying to use evidence to make explanations from things, Mm -hmm. if we're trying to make sense of this world by observing it, we can't handle it. And so we... I mean, the brain's just good enough to kind of get us through the forest and being able to, you know, collect enough roots and tubers and avoid the leopard and be able to procreate. And we try to, to like, figure stuff out. Mm-hmm. It's not going to happen. Mm-hmm. So what we have to do is get our observations down onto the paper, get our questions down onto the paper, get our explanations, anything that is going on in here that you think is worthwhile, get it down on the paper. Right. And that's true of our scientific things. It's also true of the kind of the goofy moments of our life. Like here, here's this feather. That's Jack tapping on a drawing of a feather in his nature journal. Covered with blood. Mm. So where did this come from? Well, my daughter found it underneath the tree across the street. And while I was on a meeting, she came banging on the window showing me these bloody (laughs) feathers, right? So the the phenomenon is great. And it turns out Mm. I was leading a workshop on how do you kind of, you know, use inquiry to investigate phenomena, how do you select phenomena, and my daughter is like outside my window holding up a phenomena, right? And And dropped itself into your lap. And so I said, bring that in, bring that in. And so we we did this online with with this group of people. So I have to have her in there too, because that's part of the experience. As Mm -hmm. interesting as the rock dove feathers splattered with blood were, the other part of the experience is I love this little girl and she brought a, this like bloody feathers to Papa <laughs> yeah. because, and she was so excited about him, not grossed out at right. all about it. I love that. And you know, there she was out the window. So, you know, you'd think like, I'm no way I'm going to forget that. Right. Give it two days. Jack pointed out that Charles Darwin didn't actually figure out his ideas on transmutation of species until after he'd left the Galapagos Islands and was back in England looking at his notebooks. Because what you can do is you can hold on paper many more ideas Mm -hmm. and complex ideas and show relationships to them than you can inside your electric meat. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So you're, you're sensing and perceiving. If you see something get it down in here, get the next thing down in here, get the next thing down Mm -hmm. in here. And then you can look in here and you can see all of your ideas swimming together Mm -hmm. and you can do something even bigger with it. What if you don't feel confident in your ability to capture it? Okay, that that doesn't matter at all. It doesn't matter at all. One of the biggest myths about nature journaling is it's about kind of nature drawing and it's this thing that nature artists do when they go Mm -hmm. out and they're gonna nature Mm -hmm. journal. And no, so I was starting off here making a a kind of, you know, going to be making a drawing. I'm going to do the rest of this in a totally diagrammatic fashion. Mm -hmm. And you'll see that I'll be able to record a ton of information about this in a way that is not pretty picture-y. But what I'm trying to do is, if you want an interest, a, a good page, make it dense with information. When I go out to Nature Journal, I tend to get really fixated on the prettiness of the pictures I'm making. It's hard not to. 
We're used to seeing beautiful finished products by professional artists and graphic designers, and it's hard for me not to compare my work with theirs. But when I think like this, I'm entirely missing the point of the Nature Journal. This is like, you know, I'm dyslexic, mm -hmm. right? So, and if I'm trying to say transparent, how do I spell transparent? And I think I can't write transparent because I don't know how to spell that. You see, like, that doesn't make any sense. Like, this, this is your brain on paper. Right. Right? This was the exact right example to use with me. In my former life as a high school English teacher, I can't tell you how many kids would stop writing in the middle of an assignment every time they were afraid they were spelling a word incorrectly. It drove me crazy because by focusing on their spelling, even on free writing assignments, they were interrupting their thought process and not getting all of their ideas and observations on paper. I always wished I could magically clear away all of the insecurities holding them back and open up their ability to break through to the next level of thinking. But it never occurred to me that I was doing the same exact thing in my nature journal. As an antidote to this kind of fixation on prettiness, Jack said to focus on getting as much information onto the page as possible. He even pulled out a ruler. It's about three centimeters tall, and it's about 14 centimeters wide. So rather than focusing on aesthetics, Jack suggests focusing on questions, data, observations, relationships, and possibilities. But what if your drawing still looks nothing like the thing you were trying to draw? And so when I get things down on paper, I can then say, like, does it really look like that? And if so, I can write, you know, should be wider. Mm -hmm. Well, now you have an should artifact, right, to compare to reality. That's right. Rather than trying to just remember a bunch of facts in your head. That's right. That's right. And the remembering's not going to, just like the video of the child playing with the video camera, uh -huh. it's, it's not going to work out well for you. Right. Keeping a nature journal helps us work with the way our brains work rather than against it. At this point, whether you've ever nature journaled before or not, I hope you're wanting to go out and give it a shot or to refine or grow your practice. So let's get into a few of the practical elements of setting up your page. Do you usually note the weather, the time, all of those things, or do you sometimes do that, sometimes not? I do it when I'm paying attention and being a good naturalist. Okay. So the more I can make that metadata my habit, the better off I am. Mm -hmm. Because the scientific value of this information goes way up when I date stamp and georeference mm -hmm. it. And so I'm going to write... He recorded the location. Mineral flats at Bedwell, Bayfront Park. The date. And November 11th. And relevant weather information. I'm going to say three to four days after rain and it's partly cloudy mm -hmm. drawing a little cloud with a little sun peeking out one great thing about recording metadata like this is that you can do really cool things with it like go back to the same place on the same day the next year and compare things like what the weather's doing the state of the vegetation how dry things are whether or not a plant is blooming and so much more it's really just a great way to level up our observations about the natural world so recording metadata is one fantastic tool to use in your naturalist toolkit. This next part you're about to hear is just absolutely stuffed with more tools for you. Six of them, in fact. And if you use them intentionally, you're going to grow so much as a naturalist and nature journaler. And actually just like person who is alive. What I like to do is I like to think in my head of two triads. Words, pictures, numbers. Mm. 
I've got words, I've got pictures, I've got numbers. Mm -hmm. Okay? I notice, I wonder, it reminds me of. Mm -hmm. So those are the two triads. There's words, pictures, and numbers. There's a notice, I wonder, it reminds me of. And what you're doing when you're nature journaling is you're putting those two together mm -hmm. and putting them down on the page. And so you can use those as prompts as you're doing things real time, or then you can kind of look back at it instead of like, am I doing words, pictures, and numbers? And I notice, I wonder, it reminds me of. I've got these, it reminds me of. I've got a lot of observations here. There's no questions, mm. right? Jack goes into more detail on these in the Law's Guide to Nature Journaling, which I adore and have used a ton, by the way. But I also think you can get a lot out of just hearing them again. So here are the two triads. One, words, pictures, and numbers. Don't be deceived by the simplicity of this. It's so powerful to include these three things together. And remember that you can get creative with them. I love the idea of putting a few lines of poetry in your journal, for instance, or just waxing poetic about something you see. And the second triad is I notice, I wonder, it reminds me of. These three prompts help you make observations, ask questions, and draw comparisons. Don't worry, you'll hear those stated again. But when he went over them out loud, Jack realized that he was missing questions. He was missing, I wonder. So he thought of a couple of questions and added them to his journal right there. So are these little red growths, green growths, are these new since the rain? I want to be intentional about bringing those questions into my journaling process. And I can use that thinking of, I notice, I wonder, it reminds me of as a triad to prompt me to notice when I haven't asked questions or I haven't done and it reminds me of, or, you know, is there something that I'm leaving out here that could make this process richer? Now, if you're getting into this idea and you're curious about what kinds of art supplies to get, Jack has a whole list of suggestions on his website, which is johnmuirlaws.com. And of course, I'll link that in the show notes. But one of his suggestions is a very cool pencil that draws super light blue called a non-photo blue pencil. And that allows you to capture the shape and proportions of something as you start sketching. And if you sketch lightly, you don't even have to erase this blue pencil. You can just start using a heavier pencil or a pen over top. I also just love his whole philosophy about art supplies. A little set of colored pencils is absolute gold or a little set of watercolors if you're comfortable with how to use watercolors to allow you to you know, start to you know, play with colors. Colored pencils are much easier to navigate at the start. You want to use a system that is gonna make it easy for you to get the information that you want down onto a page in a way with the least hassle or trouble. That way the process of doing it gets out of the way mm. of the thinking. So whatever supplies help you forget about the fact that you're using art supplies are probably the best art supplies. Again, the point is the thinking you're doing about the world around you. Almost every single time I've put my nicest paper and watercolors into my backpack for the day, I've failed to use them. I'm just paralyzed by not wanting to mess up that beautiful paper with my subpar art. But by not doing anything at all, I've cheated myself out of who knows how many new observations, insights, and moments of presence. Jack explains this so much better and more colorfully than I'm explaining it, so I'm going to pass the baton back to him. 
if you have a journal, you want a journal that feels sturdy, that feels that you like the feel of, that kind of invites you as a naturalist to take notes in me, take notes yeah. here. <laughs> I'm your, I'm an extension of your brain. Right. And but if it feels fussy, then it it feels like. I'm an extension of your brain, and you, you can't play here unless you're going to be proper. Right. Right. right? And then, like, and is, is this really worthy of being put down on my fine linens? Yes. Right? And you're like, like, ooh, no, I've got just a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. Like, <laughs> I can't put it, I, you know, this is, there's, there's, there's a tablecloth and, and fine china here. I right. cannot eat my peanut butter and jelly sandwich here. Right? And so you don't bust out your journal. You don't play with it. And so you are hurting yourself. Mm. You are hurting your ability to think. Fundamentally, you're hurting your ability to think mm -hmm. because you've got journal supplies then that feel like you can only use those if you know it's going to meet some particular aesthetic standard. Right. As opposed to this is an extension of my brain, and I recognize that journaling is an essential thinking skill. At this point, we packed up our notebooks and art supplies and hiked up the hills away from the mineral flat, stopping occasionally to examine little mysteries as we went. You start to see them everywhere when you're with Jack, and his practiced eyes are scanning the world for beauty and strangeness in every direction. We found a place to sit under a tree for our full conversation. I actually got chills when I went back over the audio from this interview because the truths within it are so resonant. So stick around. We'll be back with that after a short break. And now onto the full interview. How would you define nature journaling and how did you get interested in it? I define nature journaling as using words, pictures, and numbers to document and record our observations, our questions, and the connections that we make. I notice, I wonder, it reminds me of. Onto an external source. Usually this means an analog pad and a, and a pen or a pencil. The exact tools that you use don't matter, but it is using these processes of observation and curiosity to allow us to connect more deeply with the natural world around us. I got started in this when I was a little kid in elementary school. Mm. I was a little nature nerd. My parents watered the seeds of little nature curiosity. And on one of our early family trips, a botanist friend of my mom's was walking along with a nature journal and she mm -hmm. was drawing and sketching all the different plants that she found. And my mom noticed that everywhere that her friend Neela went. Neela would sit down and make a sketch of a plant. I was kind of her shadow and I'd walk, <laughs> I would just walk next to her and then sit down and I'd watch what she was doing and then she'd get up and I'd, and she, she watched this throughout the day and she thought, huh. And, you know, paying attention is so important for a connection with nature. Paying attention is so important for our relationships with our children. And she paid attention and the next time we went out into the field, she said, uh, Jack, I've got something for you. She opened up the back of the car and there was exactly the same kind of notebook and journal that Neela had. The same kinds of pencils and erasers and tools. Mm. And she said, this is for you. And I knew just what to do. And I went from there. 
I love this story so much. It reminds me a little bit of Ralph Washington Jr. from the Entomology episode and how his grandma noticed his fascination with bugs and got him a little bug catching kit. There's so much power in noticing what a kid gravitates toward and fostering that love. Now, you heard a little bit earlier about why nature journaling is important, but I asked Jack if he wanted to elaborate on that at all, and I absolutely adore where he went with this. I think that people should nature journal because the process helps you pay attention, mm. and the process allows you to discover levels of richness, connection, mystery, and beauty that are largely inaccessible when we're just experiencing it with our eyes. That piece of paper can hold so much more than our brain can on mm -hmm. its own. And it's through that act of attention that we make connection and fall in love. My definition of love is sustained, compassionate attention. And when we pay that deep, deliberate attention to the world around us, it affects us in a profoundly different way. And I want to help people find that beauty I want to help people make those connections. I want to help people fall in love. Mm. And it's from that love that we are motivated then to become stewards of this place. Mm. So for me, teaching people how to nature journal is my way of helping them on the path to stewardship of the earth. Like you think about your relationship, say with your child, and when we, we stop and we really pay attention it fundamentally changes our relationship with them. Mm -hmm. And they are seen, and we are seeing, and then they're seeing, and, and it's through that act of attention that you build your relationship. When you put down what you're doing and are really there, that's the fabric that that relationship can grow and thrive in. Because mm -hmm. that attention itself is the act of love. And I like that you you state it that way because sustained, compassionate attention is something actionable. Yes. And I notice that it's lacking this definition of love that we often think of in this very emotional, emotionally intense sort of way, right? It's not an emotionally based definition of love. Mm -hmm. And so why do you think you favor this definition that doesn't describe a feeling? Yeah, I think of love as something that I do, hmm. not of something that happens to me. And certainly the feeling of falling in love, I think that that is more of a biochemical trick of our neurochemistry to get us <laughs> to pair bond long enough to continue the species. Fair enough. Right? And so that happens to us. Right. But then you get up the next morning mm. and the work begins. Mm. And somebody who's following that kind of biochemical feeling then says, I've got to break up with you because I just don't feel that spark, that magic anymore. Or what you could do is you could roll up your sleeves and pay attention mm. and really learn this person and you will connect with them in a different way. And it is so rich and so powerful. Mm -hmm. And that love that comes through time and attention is like you can think of that in, in relationship to the child, your partner or a place mm. you know, that is there a place that you particularly love. And that, that connection that you have to it comes out of the act of, of attention. And I know you've talked before too about this idea of cultivating attention. Mm -hmm. how, do we, how do we do that? Especially yeah. how do we do that in this world? 
So uh, attention and curiosity, these are skills. Mm. They're skills and you, you need to work at them because our brains are easily distracted. We live in a clickbait world mm. and there are so many things, you know, pulling at, I mean, you, you have this, like your attention is your most precious commodity. How are you going to spend your attention today? And all these little online gremlins <laughs> want that attention. Mm -hmm. And you can use it in a way that deepens your relationship with the world and others. Or you can also just let it pull you from distraction to distraction. Mm. So I believe that in being intentional about my observation, I believe in being intentional about my curiosity. So I'm not just waiting for curiosity to happen to me. I'm going to do curiosity right now. And when that happens, I'm able to lean into things more deeply. I'm pulled into, let myself kind of fall into the gravity well of an amazing phenomenon and be pulled and, and moved by that. And it takes work and it takes practice. The more you practice, the richer the experience becomes. So I now I'm getting positive feedback by spending time looking at, you know, a weird plant on a mineral flat. Mm -hmm. And it's so pleasurable. There's so much just joy and mystery and wonder and these cool things that are, are, <laughs> are happening. Right. And the mystery that I'm uncovering just, you know, it doesn't make me more jaded, like now I know what's going on. It mm -hmm. makes me even more amazed and aware of how much I don't know. Mm -hmm. Um, when you get curious about something, your brain releases dopamine. Mm. That's a dopamine dependent response. Mm -hmm. So here's this big slosh of this neurotransmitter and you're now in the presence of this crazy little jewel of a plant. And what are you going to do with that? And it's such a pleasure. I, I feel like I, you know, every day that I can go out and wonder and explore, I feel like I've, I've won the lottery. Mm. I have a mind that is capable of grokking part of this wonder around me. And it is, it's joyful, but it takes intentionality. It takes work. So thinking is calorically extremely expensive, right? So your brain is 2% of your body weight. Your brain uses 20% of the calories that you consume. Wow. 20%. <laughs> That's one out of every five burritos. Wow is to feed your brain. We've been hiking and walking around here and our brains are using 20% of our energy. That's crazy. That is wild. So your brain has all sorts of useful ways of kind of reducing the caloric load on that brain. And you know, that may be one reason why like I'm going to like, oh, look at this YouTube video. Mm. And you might also like this. Oh, I'll go there. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like, it's easy to it's do easy. that. And our brain finds those little channels. I mean, they're seductive. But if I can get myself to drop into a gravity well of a phenomenon, time and time again, it just shows me how much richness is around me in every little phenomenon that is around me. All the meditation work is to try to get you to be present. Mm -hmm. When we're doing nature journaling, we are right here, right now. Mm -hmm. And the more we can let this moment be, the more the world opens up. Yeah, and that is hard if you haven't practiced it. Mm -hmm. I notice that days that I spend too long scrolling on my phone, then I feel scrambled 
And if I try to sit down and focus on something, my brain rejects it <laughs> and is telling me, no, 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 no. Go back to scrolling on your phone, mm -hmm. right? Because it gives you all of those immediate little hits and there's all these little bids for your attention. Mm -hmm. But then the next day, it's harder for me to pay attention for a long time because I haven't cultivated it. Yeah, what seeds do we choose to water? They talk about meditation as a practice. Journaling is a practice. Mm -hmm. You go out and you practice it. Mm -hmm. And you are doing it for the sake of whatever you're doing in that moment. But also, as you do that, you make that practice more accessible to your neural networks. Mm -hmm. One of the things that's really helped me in the past when I've gotten super addicted to my phone is to have a very easy, accessible replacement behavior. Like for a whole year, I would just always have a book with me. And every time I went to pick up my phone for no reason, I would just pick up the book instead and sit there and start reading. And my mental health was so much better when I was doing that. But if you struggle with this too, maybe let's all try practicing replacement behaviors together. I was literally about to say DM me on Instagram if you want to try this out with me, and then I realized that that would suck us back into Instagram. This is how they get you. And a lot of what this is making me think of too, you, you haven't mentioned a whole lot of particular species or scientific facts while we've been talking, and, and that makes me think, you know, maybe you don't have to go to Yosemite to do this. So what about people who live in A, very urban environments, or B, very degraded ecosystems? I mean. What does nature journaling look like for them? I'm gonna pull out my journal here. It's a new journal. And this is a study of the potato that sprouted in my cupboard. <laughs> I love it. And I was utterly enthralled by this potato. And I kept this potato. Its skin has now turned green. And actually today mm. or tomorrow, I'm gonna to be doing this potato part two. Mm. It's got these little horns on it, so I named it Thor because it's got <laughs> these little kind of like the Viking helmet. But, you know, there's so much going on in the potato that sprouted in my, my cupboard. And it is wonderful and exciting and interesting. And it is not where you go. It's not where you look. It's how you look. Mm -hmm. And so look at these clouds above us. There's so much going on in these. We could have spent our day looking at clouds <laughs> instead of the mineral flat. The phenomena that are fascinating are everywhere. And what we want to do is part of becoming the, the naturalist is we are training ourselves to find the wonder in more and more and more things around us to find beauty in more and more things around us. Now, at the start, you know, oh, that's beautiful. It's Yosemite Falls mm -hmm. with the light coming through. And then from this angle, we see a rainbow forming here. And, you know, uh, yes, that's beautiful. But this little puddle over here <laughs> that is reflecting this incredible blue of the sky mm -hmm. is beautiful. There's this little piece of the the sky sitting in the middle of this dusty road. Or could you walk over there and jump through into the sky on the other <laughs> side? You know, and that's, that's beautiful there. Like, actually, just, just right here, right now, what I want you to do. I want you to try this with us too. So listen to what Jack asks you to do. 
is what we're both going to do is we're both going to look around and we're each going to find just a little moment of beauty and just a little micro beauty and you just you can frame it with your hands when you look through that way that little moment over there the way that the light hits the yellow grasses right there and mm. this lights them up this whole gray hillside and then there's this little zone of those yellow yellow glasses mm -hmm. grasses and there's light coming through just and they're and they're glowing mm -hmm. that's beautiful that is right and so you're finding you're taking just a little beauty break and you find a micro beauty let's both do that right okay. Now. okay 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 take a second to do this but i don't know where you are right now so please don't drive into like a particularly beautiful tree or anything like that be safe okay beauty break then we'll share them All right, what you got? I'm looking over this direction at the pastel blue of the distant oh, mountains. Yeah. There's this sort of warm sky behind it with the orange, and then there's this dusty pastel blue. And you kind of look around, and there's that, that little dusty mm. pastel rim around us. It is just, it's, you kind of put a little circle around that. You could frame that, and you can hang it on your wall, mm -hmm. and you'd have that little piece of beauty. Mm -hmm. I've got the way that these, these leaves on this eucalyptus tree are just swaying in oh. the wind. And so part of the beauty is in the movement, mm -hmm. but they're also dancing. the way that the light is catching the top half of the leaves and then their shadow kind of underneath. Absolutely beautiful. I hope you found a little moment of beauty too. The more you look, the more you'll see. Also, I know eucalyptus trees are invasive. Please don't hate me for thinking their leaves are pretty in the wind. And had you not mentioned that, I would not have noticed it. Mm. All right, so we can find these, you know, part of what we're doing is we're, we're training ourselves to appreciate the micro beauties. A little more and more, just a, I don't need Yosemite. If you can find the beauty here mm. and see that, that one, that, only that little part up there, that mm -hmm. tree is dancing. And we can do the same with wonder, right? So my, my kind of go-to approach as a naturalist is I'm looking for beauty and wonder. Mm -hmm. So I'm looking for the things that make you go, ah, or, huh, right? <laughs> and, and then the more you practice it, the more subtle the little, ah, right. the little moments of beauty can become. And then you find yourself just sort of walking, surrounded by all these little moments of beauty. And then surrounded by all these little strange things that you realize you don't understand. Right. And being a naturalist is an invitation to go there. Where I think a lot of times we need permission, right? Growing up, I always had a really hard time with feeling like, oh, do I belong here? Do I belong there? Am I welcome here? Am I welcome there? Nobody sent me an invitation to this party called life. <laughs> right? But still I'm here and I don't mm -hmm. really know what to do with my hands. And I think that if you have a nature journal, I mean, it gives you something to do with your hands, right? Yep. It gives you a purpose yes, and a way to be in that space that gives you an invitation to be there and an invitation to look carefully. That's right. It is, it's two things. It's the invitation and it's also the tool mm -hmm. that you would use to go there. Mm -hmm. It's the invitation and it's the key. And Jack has taken that invitation and that key and unlocked some amazing things with it. So here's a little look into some of what he's been working on. The Wild Wonder Foundation is brand new. Can you yeah. tell me a little bit about that? I'm what? so excited about that. I'm so excited about the, the Wild Wonder Foundation. We wanted to kind of, to create a hub for 
this kind of investigation of the natural world. Mm. So using the tools of art and science, community, can we help people build a deeper connection with the natural world mm -hmm. in a way that will motivate us all to become active stewards. I mentioned a minute ago that Wild Wonder is still new, but they're already doing so many cool things like the Wild Wonder Nature Journaling Conference and video series online for free to learn nature journaling from John Muir Laws. They even have a couple of international projects that are very kid-centric in places like Tanzania and the Galapagos Islands. One of the main focuses of Wild Wonder is community, and I really like the way that they go about building that. We have one fundamental rule, and that's kindness. Mm -hmm. Just be kind. It's a good one. From that, you can build all sorts of, of other things. But if you don't have that, it's not going to work. Being unkind is a very fast way to shut down somebody's idea that might have turned into a really great idea. This is true. Even this if you true. didn't like it right away. And growth takes vulnerability. Mm -hmm. And we can't be vulnerable mm. in the presence of people who are being really unkind to us. We have to keep our armor on. Yes. So if we can kind of create an environment where it's okay to shed our armor, we're going to be able to crawl out of that shell and find a newer, bigger one. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> not crawled uh, Hermit crab. Hermit crab yeah. style. Thank you. Hermit crab, Hermit crab like, style. Like, 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 oh, it's like, right. But if I can't slip out of my shell, mm. I'm not going to be able to grow. Right. You're stuck. I'm stuck in this little shell. Can we just generally get more great nature analogies like this? That was awesome. Another project that you've just recently finished is Wild Sonoma. And I own it and it is beautiful. So can you tell me a little bit about the project and what is this book, Wild Sonoma? Wild Sonoma is a really, was a really fun project. And now it is a really cool book. What it is, is a, the result of a collaboration. So we had you know, artists, photographers, naturalists, writers, working together as a team to celebrate a place. And some of the, just the natural wild parts of a place. We were talking earlier about how you don't need to go to the distant national park to find wonder around you. Mm -hmm. And this book is helping to point out how you know, right here in the middle of this county, there's all of these resources and species and interactions that are beautiful, exciting, fascinating, and wonderful. Many people come to Sonoma because it's known for its wine region. So maybe come for the wine, but stay for the biodiversity. <laughs> it's a chance to really realize that this this place is so much deeper in a very accessible way mm -hmm. and then my hope from that is that somebody who say goes to sonoma before the wine then has a chance to fall in love with some of the biodiversity and beauty of the place can then take that back home to wherever they are to learn that the biodiversity of wherever they are in their home is also so exciting and beautiful and wonderful. Okay, first of all, I love that. I think it's beautiful that so many of us live in the middle of places that we don't always recognize the biodiversity of and the specialness of the ecosystems around us. Secondly, apparently Jack didn't want to brag, so I'll do it for him. The foreword of this book was written by none other than Jane Goodall. I was starstruck by proxy when I found that out and really just flattered that like she even knows we're over here. Here's a little excerpt from her forward. 
Wild Sonoma Exploring Nature in Wine Country is a book for our times. It provides an introduction to the natural and unnatural forces shaping our environment, then offers an informed and lively field guide to common plants, animals, birds, and insects one is likely to encounter on a hike in Sonoma. Lastly, it suggests a set of special excursions to experience Sonoma's varied natural landscapes. That second part of the book that Goodall mentions is the field guide section, and that's where Jack's many diverse illustrations live. I asked him how he prefers to work on his illustrations for projects like this, and he said that he uses a combination of field observations and photographs, but that the real-life observations help inform him of the personalities of his subjects. If you're sketching from life in the field, then you can kind of get a sense of the gestalt, the the oomph, the feeling of Mm -hmm. this thing. Well, and that's one of the things I really like about your art in general, is that I feel like it does this amazing balancing act of being accurate. And it's something where it could be a scientific diagram and it includes all of the correct parts. But at the same time, it doesn't feel flattened out mm. on the page of a textbook. Oh, it feels you. very alive to me. Yeah. And, and I think you've got interesting angles and you've got interesting quirks or expressions or poses that, that do show movement and they show life. So I really... I admire that about your art in general, and that comes out in Wild Sonoma as well. Oh, thank you. Yeah. I think that that is getting better with time. Hmm. Because you know, the more experience I have with a particular organism, the more that I'm going to be able to get that into my work. I love that Jack acknowledges his own growth here and the journey that he's on to keep growing as an artist. It's very encouraging to people who are on the earlier end of that spectrum and haven't practiced as much. We actually got into a whole conversation about something called growth mindset that is all about this idea of continuing to learn and grow. We talked about it for about 15 minutes, and it was such a great conversation. But I had to find some ways to make this episode not be two and a half hours long. So what I did is I took that little section out and I'm going to publish it separately as a little bonus mini episode for you because I think it deserves its own deep dive. Broadly speaking, this might not even be a fair question, but what's your favorite type of thing to draw? Plants, birds, insects, landscapes, skyscapes, water. Do you have a favorite type of drawing or painting? Hmm. I do, but it's in a different category of categories. Mm, oh, okay. So oh, it's it's not that it's 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 birds. It's not that it's. I like to draw into a mystery. I like to find things. For me, it's the most fun when I get onto the edge of of something that I don't understand. And let's say I'm drawing a bird. Okay. But I really get excited and have fun when I start to realize that there's something about this that I don't understand or that I haven't seen before. Mm. What's going on with this? And if I can sort of fall into that mystery, I completely lose track of time. Mm. I am absolutely unaware of the uncomfortable position of my leg under my body. Right. And I am just immersed in whatever it is. A little bit of the unknown is really, really fun. And so that doesn't have to be a new species. Yeah. I mean, it could be literally a potato. It could literally be (laughs) a potato. Thor the potato. (laughs) Thor the potato. Keep an eye out for Thor on my Instagram sometime this week. And then just make sure to not scroll mindlessly for an hour after that. And yeah, I'm a sucker for a good mystery. Mm -hmm. So when I'm looking at something that I 
have looked at before, what I very often will try to do is, can I find something novel in the familiar? Mm -hmm. Can I find what is new for me in this phenomenon? Mm -hmm. And I'm intentionally not looking for what I do already know mm -hmm. to reconfirm that, but I look for the edges of what I don't know and try to run up to that edge and spread my arms and fall into it. I love that. And I think that that's such a better way to learn more things also, right? Ironically, when it's not about how much you know, that is a way of knowing more. Yes, that's right. And, and it's so much fun. Like I used to think that to be a good naturalist, I needed to memorize all this stuff. Right, sure. And then being a dyslexic naturalist, and it's hard to read, I'm thinking like, how mm -hmm. am I going to be a naturalist if I have a hard time reading all this stuff? Mm -hmm. I now think that just the essential skills of how can I play with a mystery? How can I tinker with the unknown? How can I do that intentionally? And what practices bring me more into that? That's fun. So find a mystery to fall into. It can be a teeny tiny mystery. That's okay. But first, fall into this last question with me. What about this work of being a naturalist, nature journaling, teaching nature journaling, all of the art that you create, what about it still takes your breath away? Maybe this isn't quite the answer to the question that you've asked, but what is it that makes it take my breath away even more so now than before hmm. is how lucky and ephemeral I am that I get to be here. I get to be the one who sees that the light is transmitted through those blades of grass, hmm. causing them to glow with this lime green. And there'll be a time that these fresh blades of grass aren't here. There'll be a time that I'm not here. Mm -hmm. You know, maybe being a daddy makes me also then realize that, you know, I'm at a part in my life where, you know, it was two and a half, now almost three years ago that my mother died. Mm. And I'm now a father of these two little children. And I'm aware that I have this one sort of very brief time to be here and experience all of this hmm. and how can I show up for that it's beautiful to think about that <laughs> and I think that the fact that it's ephemeral and I'm ephemeral mm -hmm. make it all the more poignant and urgent I mean just like look look at this at this point, Jack took out his close-focusing binoculars oh, and yeah. pointed out a tiny little right. plant that you'd really have to be looking to notice it, pushing up through the soil just a few feet away from us. Much personality. And it's just this nub, little nub of a plant pushing up through the moist dirt. Yep. You know, this, is, this is probably the first day that it has received sunlight. Ah, still a little yellow. And you know, that may not have even been there when we sat down. And I mean, that's incredible. And just to be in the, the presence of this little seedling that is poking up mm 
Mm-hmm. Mm. How lucky, how lucky we are. What then is my responsibility to this world? Hmm. I knew a ranger in Yosemite named Carl Sharsmith. He was this botanist and was a friend of my parents. He, he drove this old, ancient, ancient car that was a wonder that it still moved. He named it Rosinante. Rosinante, huh? <laughs> and, but he was older than it. And he would lead these uh, walks, these nature walks in, in Yosemite when my parents met him and first got to know him. You know, he would, he would hike up to the top of Mount Dana and back, reciting poetry the whole way. <laughs> and then in his later years, what he would do is he would lead, as mobility became an, an issue, he would lead these these field trips into Tuolumne Meadows where he would take people out and then he would take off his straw ranger hat and he would throw it out into the field. And the hat would float out like a frisbee and float down onto the ground. And then he would have the people in his group come out and lay down on the ground, on the, the grass and around that hat, out like the spokes of a wheel. Hmm. And then he would move the hat and spend the entire time on just what was there (laughs) underneath that hat. Wow. And it would be an amazing tale and discovery. Mm -hmm. It's right there underneath the hat. Not a very big area. And and it's not not where you look. Right. It's how you look. Mm -hmm. Well, I think that's the perfect note to end on. Thank you so much, Jack. I really appreciate how much time you gave to this. Well, thank you for coming down yeah, and uh, this was really fun for me too fun to and I look forward to seeing how you splice this together and what you do with it it'll be fun all right thank you after we finished the interview and we were walking down the path out of the park Jack bent down and he picked up a little pebble and it's sort of this brownish maroonish color very small and smooth and shiny and he held it up and he said this is a magic pebble if you keep this pebble in your pocket and forget about it at some point during the day you'll put your hand in your pocket and you'll feel it and you'll remember that it's there and when you pull it out look around because that means that there's something beautiful nearby after you notice the beautiful thing put the rock back in your pocket and the next time you pull it out it means there's something weird nearby and you have to look around and see what's weird and throughout the day you just alternate between what's beautiful and what's weird at this point i had completely bought in to this magic pebble and i was really excited when jack handed it to me so i'm holding it right now and i'm in my bedroom and i'm looking around and the beautiful thing that i see right now is the quilt that's on my bed because it used to be on my parents bed when i was a kid and it had kind of become invisible to me but this pebble helped me see it again so get yourself a magic pebble find a teeny tiny little pebble and keep it in your pocket because there's beautiful and weird things all around you all the time Before I go, I just want to say a big thank you to Jack for spending 
so much time with me. I think we spent about an hour and a half or two hours longer together than we had actually scheduled. So thank you for being flexible and so generous with your time. I also want to thank Heyday Books for helping coordinate this interview and going back and forth. I don't know how many emails. Thank you so much for being the scheduling pro and being so great and in just every way. Thanks as always to Stan for paying sustained, compassionate attention to our kids while I was gone on this interview all day long. And to everyone here listening for sticking around to the very end of the episode. Something interesting for my week is the same interesting thing that's happened to many of us in California, and that is that we've had five atmospheric rivers in two weeks, and my backyard only got slightly flooded, so that was exciting. We actually mark the severity of rain around here by how much of our patio is covered in water. So at the worst point, one third of our patio was covered in water this time, which is a lot, but not quite as bad as that one atmospheric river we had a few years ago where like 90% of the patio was covered in water and we thought our house was going to flood. So it's a lot better than that. I hope that you were able to stay safe and dry in the midst of this wild weather. Okay, thanks for listening. Go get some like crappy paper and a clipboard and a pencil and draw something outside or good paper or like a real journal or notebook, whatever you've got, but just don't let not having the right thing stop you. Okay, see you on the next episode of Golden State Naturalist. The song is called I Don't Know by Grapes, and you can find a link to that song and the Creative Commons license in the show notes.